special uh, four-week series called Right on the Money. We've taken a break from our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew called Let's Talk About Jesus to spend some time talking about money. But before we do that, I want to just take a minute to draw your attention to this insert that's in your bulletin this morning. So I put this together this way, typed it out like this so that I wouldn't have to go into a long, detailed explanation. But the bottom line is this. I'm looking for a very special, very specific kind of a small group experience. Uh, We want to call that a spiritual discovery group. I'm looking for people who don't necessarily identify themselves as Christians. Maybe you're worshiping with us, but you have questions, you have concerns, maybe you have objections. And maybe you're not worshiping with us, but somebody who is knows somebody like that. I'd like to spend some time talking to those folks in a very safe, uh, respectful environment. And so I want you to take the time to read this today if you haven't already done that. And there's some contact information on there. If you know somebody or if you're somebody who would uh, enjoy being a part or want to be a part of a group like that, then please respond accordingly. All right. Hey, as we begin this morning, let me just ask you a kind of an odd question uh, with this message called uh, the right margin. If you lost all your means of financial support tomorrow, so you lost your job and your income or you lost whatever source of income you had uh, to cover your living, would or here's the question, if that happened, how long could you hold on to your home? How you answer that question really gets to the heart of today's message called the right margin because here's the bottom line for a lot of people when it comes to finances. We're okay as long as we keep getting paid, but if something were to happen and we were to go a month, maybe even just a pay period, whatever that looks like for you, without getting paid, we would be in trouble because we don't have any margin, any financial margin in our lives to get by. We'd be in serious trouble. What makes that even worse is that according to the research that I did this past week, somewhere between 50 to 60% of American families today spend more money than they earn. We do that primarily through borrowing money, whether it's credit cards or some other source. And so that's a big problem. We don't have any margin in our lives when it comes to finances. When I use the word margin, I'm talking about the space between our load and our limit. The space between our load and our limit. If we talked about it in financial terms, I'm talking about the space between what we earn and what we spend. Most people today don't have any margin when it comes to their finances. No room between what they earn and what they spend. Now, the truth is we need margin in a lot of different areas of our lives. For example, we need spiritual margin in our lives. Look at these words on the screen from Psalm 46 and verse 10, the very, few, the very first part of the verse. Uh, The psalmist writes and says, be still and know that I am God. Well, here's a good question. When's the last time you felt like you had the time to just do that? When you had the time to slow your life down and get yourself removed from the busyness of your life so that you could be still and really have some kind of communion or connection with God. Now, if your schedule is so busy that you don't have the time to do that, then you've got a problem in your life. You need some margin when it comes to your schedule and you need some spiritual margin in your life. Well, I could go on and illustrate the need for margin in a lot of different ways, but I think you get the point. And we're talking about financial margin this morning so we can be the the kind of stewards, the kind of managers that God wants us to be. So what I've got this morning is just a real simple message, friends. I've got a real simple, real practical message uh, that's focused on some things 
that we can do to try to get financial margin in our lives. And this message is a little different than what we normally do because normally when we come to church, the very first thing I say when I step up on the stage is grab your Bible and turn to, and we open our Bibles to a certain passage of Scripture, and we begin in the first part of that passage, and we work our way sometimes verse by verse, line by line, word by word through that passage to understand it. But I don't have a specific passage for us to turn to today. Um, we're going to look at some selected scriptures to talk about what it means to have financial margin in our lives. But because we make the public reading of scripture such a significant part of our service every week, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put a verse of scripture, just a single verse of scripture up on the screen. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Go ahead and do that right now. And we're going to read it together. Not going to be very long, just a matter of seconds. But this is our public reading of scripture. Let's read it together. Let me hear your voices. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. All right, there it is. You can be seated. Now, let me tell you how we should understand those words this morning. When I live with boundaries that fall in pleasant places, and by the way, the word for pleasant there in the original language of the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew language, is the Hebrew word naim, and literally it means agreeable. So the psalmist is saying, and this is David who's writing, that when I live in boundaries that fall in pleasant or agreeable places, the result is a delightful inheritance. If I put that in really, really simple terms, this is what the psalmist is saying. This is what David is saying. When I live within the boundaries of God, the result is good. Now, how many of you know that's true in just about any area of life? In any area of life, we're talking about financial things this morning, but in any area of life, finances, our marriage, our personal relationships, our work, our service, in any area of life, when we live in with the boundaries of God, when we live within the boundaries of God in any area of our life, the result is good. And the word boundaries here, we can understand, is just another word for margin. When we live with, with margin in our lives that is pleasing to God, the result is good. And so if we want to live uh, productive lives as good stewards, good managers of the monies that God has entrusted to us, then we need to have the right kind of boundaries or we need to have the right kind of margin in our lives. So let me, let me spend some time talking to you about what that means. I'm going to give you four specific kinds of margin that all of us need in our lives related to our stewardship or our management of the monies, the wealth that God has entrusted to us. And these are applicable whether you have a little or a lot. They're the same for all of us, whether we have a little or a lot. If you're taking notes, write down next to number one, the very first thing. The first thing we need when it comes to being good stewards of what God has entrusted to us is we need the margin of knowledge. We need the margin of knowledge. Now, I've talked to you over the years on many different occasions about one single verse from the book of Proverbs that I think is a, a powerful verse, one of my favorite verses. It's Proverbs thirteen sixteen. I think we even talked about it last week, where the proverb writer says, every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. Every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. And what that means for us related to financial stewardship or management is that we need to handle whatever it is that God has entrusted to us, financially speaking, from a position of knowledge. We need to know the details. We need to be knowledgeable about the details of our financial situation and our financial condition, every one of us. Look at these words from Proverbs 27. This is verses 23 and 24. Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. 
For riches do not endure forever, and a crown is not secure for all generations. Now clearly, friends, clearly, the use of the phrase riches do not endure forever indicates that the practical application of this verse is that you need to handle whatever amount of wealth you have, again, whether it's a little or a lot, from a position of knowledge. If this were written in modern times, it would read like this. Be sure you know the condition of your bank accounts and your investment accounts, or be sure you know the condition of your home and its contents, or be sure you know the condition of some other description of physical wealth in your life. Handling wealth, whatever God has entrusted to you from a position of knowledge, just makes sense. But the truth is, and I know this from personal experience and counseling people over the years in church, the truth is, Very few people are able to say that they do this. Very few people take this approach. In fact, let's just do a little test this morning. And I'm going to ask some basic questions. I'm going to ask five really simple, fundamental, basic questions related to finances that everyone should be able to answer. And you just see how many of them you could give a good, solid, accurate answer to. We'll start with a real simple one. The first question is this. When it comes to finances, when it comes to whatever amount of money God has entrusted to you, how much is coming in? How much is coming in? Now, that might be really simple for some people, like, you know, for me, uh, I have a direct deposit of my paycheck into my account, and so I can just look at it every week and tell you how much is coming in. Now, I know that certain amounts of money have been taken out of it beforehand, so I can go back and I can figure that out by looking at those things, but it's pretty simple. Now, I know that not everybody is paid the same way, and some people have jobs where they're paid uh, the same amount of money every pay period. Some people have sales jobs, and they get commissions and bonuses and things like that, so it's different. But the bottom line is, regardless of your situation, the first question is how much is coming in. The second question that I think everyone needs to be able to answer is this, how much is going out? Okay? So it's not just about how much is coming in, how much you're getting, but number two, how much are you spending? And the second part of that question was be and where's it going? So how much is going out and where's it going? How much are you spending and what are you spending it on? Now, I think this is a question that is a lot more difficult for people to answer. The third question is, what kind of financial safety nets do you have in place in your life? What kind of financial safety nets do you have in place in your life? And here's what I mean by that. Um, Do you have a savings account? Do you save money for the future? Do you have an emergency account so that if something happens and the air conditioner breaks down in the middle of the summer, the heater breaks down in the middle of the winter, you got some unexpected car expense, you know that you have the means to pay for that because you've set aside money in an emergency account. That would be a financial safety net. What about, what are you going to do if you have some kind of an unexpected medical expense? You know, I have a, I have a health savings account, medical plan, and so I need to make sure that there's money in my health savings account. What are you going to do? If you have traditional health insurance and you've got some unexpected expense and you've got to cover a deductible, What about disability insurance? What about life insurance? These are the things that I'm talking about when I say what kind of safety nets, financial safety nets do you have in place if something unexpected happens in your life? Listen, every week we come to church, one of the things that happens is we hear somebody's change for a dollar story, right? And every week, what are we reminded of? That anything can happen to anyone at any time, right? We read these heartbreaking stories about car accidents and sickness and and just tragic events that came out of the blue, none of us are safe and secure when it comes to the promise of an absolutely safe and healthy and secure tomorrow, and so we need those safety nets. The fourth question is this, and this is a big one, friends. How much debt do you have? 
I mean, you start right here at the top if you got a, if you got a mortgage and you work your way down. Mortgages, car payments, credit card debts, consumer debts at retail stores, student loans. You can go on and on and on. How much debt do you have? The fifth question is this. What are your long-term financial goals and what steps are you taking to meet them? What's the future look like for you? As far as you can control it related to finances, what's it look like for you? Now, can you answer those questions? That's what we need to be thinking about. My experience, again, is that most people can't. Maybe you can answer one or two of them, but most people can't answer all five of them. And that means there is no margin of knowledge when it comes to the way you're handling whatever it is that God has entrusted to you. Last weekend, when we began this series, we talked about the right foundation. And the right foundation when it comes to money begins with understanding that God owns everything and we're just managers. We're just stewards. That's the word the Bible uses. We're stewards or managers of whatever he has entrusted to us. And here's the fundamental truth. Every good steward, every good manager operates from a position of knowledge. That's an absolute necessity when it comes to good stewardship. Proverbs 13, 16 says, Every prudent man acts out of knowledge, but a fool exposes his folly. So number one, you need to have the margin of knowledge. Right down next to number two, the second thing. Let's just take it a step further. You need to have the margin of planning. And the margin of planning is really just a, an overflow of the margin of knowledge because once I know where I stand, financially speaking, I can answer those questions. I know the reality of my financial situation and my financial condition. I need a plan for how I'm going to manage it. That's the margin of planning. I heard a sermon one time from a guy named John Ortberg. I don't know if you're familiar with his name or not. He's a prolific writer. He's a great preacher. He has a church in the San Francisco Bay Area. But I heard a sermon from him one time called... The Ten Financial Commandments. And one of his commandments, one of the Ten Financial Commandments was, Thou shall have a plan. And he told the story of writing that message, but before he did, he took the time to talk to several people who he knew were experts in the area of finance so he could get some wisdom from them. He could glean some wisdom from them. And he said, and this is a quote, One man told me, his first memory of money came when he was three years old. I can't, that's unbelievable to me. I can't remember a single thing happened when I was three years old. Can you? That's amazing to me to think that somebody has that good a memory. But he said um, his first memory of money came when he was three years old. It was in the middle of the Great Depression. Now, this is going to tell you something. He was in the middle of the Great Depression, and his parents told him they would give him a weekly allowance where he would receive one penny for each year of his life. So when he was three years old, he received three cents a week. But his mom and dad would make him take one penny to church and give it to God, one penny to the bank and put it in savings, and then they would leave him with one penny, I guess just to throw around with reckless abandon. But Ortberg went on to say, as funny as it sounds, that kind of stuck, and today he's one of the wisest, most generous people I know. And it all started when he was three years old with a plan. It started with a plan. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about the importance of planning when it comes to money. Look at these words on the screen from Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 5. It says, the plans, everyone say plans, plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. The plans of the diligent lead to profit. How about Proverbs 21 and verse 20? In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. 
A wise man saves for the future. A foolish man just devours everything that he has. He spends it as soon as he gets it. Now, that's just a couple of verses from the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul gives us some instructions related to giving that require a plan. Look at these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 2. Paul writes and says, On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collection has to be made. Again, Paul's describing a plan. You've got to have a plan, friends. There needs to be the margin of planning. That needs to be a part of your financial stewardship and management. You've got to have a plan when it comes to handling whatever money God has entrusted to you. And there are so many different reasons why this is important, but time only allows me to talk about two. The first one is this. Having a plan will help you avoid debt. Having a plan will help you avoid debt. And debt is one of the biggest reasons why so many people are not being good stewards of what God has entrusted to them today. And if statistics are true, this is a huge issue for a lot of people that will be attending services here at Mount Pleasant this weekend. If statistics are true, this is a huge issue for a lot of people who are listening to me right now. Here's the bottom line. We've become a society, a culture, however you want to characterize it. We've become a people that just accept debt as a natural part of life. When we go to buy something, we don't ask how much does it cost. We ask how much does it cost each month? Because we just think in terms of debt. It's a part of life. But this is so dangerous because debt, unlike just about anything else financially speaking, creates bondage in our lives. And God does not want us to live in bondage in any area of life. That's why Proverbs 22 and verse 7 just literally says, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Let's try to think about the danger of debt in practical terms, because I've had so many conversations over the years with people whose only real concern when it comes to debt is whether or not I can pay the monthly payment, whether I can pay the monthly minimum. And I've had so many conversations with people who think, as long as I can pay the monthly minimum, everything is okay. But let's just talk about that from a practical standpoint for a minute. Let's suppose that after the service is over, somebody comes up to me. I'm in the guest connection room after the service. And they come up to me and they say, Pastor, I'm deeply convicted about debt. Uh, The good news, I I only carry one credit card. But the bad news is I have run up a debt of $16,061 on that card. Now, I know that sounds like an odd amount of money, but you can see why I chose that amount up there on the screen. That is the average amount of credit card debt in the U.S., according to NerdWallet, a site called NerdWallet, published in December of 2016. So they say, Pastor, I'm deeply convicted about the debt. I only carry one credit card, but I've run the debt up to $16,061 on that card. But that's going to stop today. And beginning today, I'm going to begin to make the minimum payment on that debt until it's completely gone. Well, that sounds like a good idea until you run the numbers. If you do a little math and you say, for example, that the interest rate on that credit card is 18%, and honestly, you and I both know it can be higher than that, and the minimum payment on that debt is calculated at 3% of the balance each month, then it's going to take you 276 months or 23 years to pay off that debt. And instead of paying a little over $16,000, you're going to end up paying $31,820.42. Now listen to me, friends. Going into debt, I'm talking primarily about credit card debt and consumer debt, not only keeps you from being a good steward, 
but it can jeopardize your ability to survive financially speaking because the problem is when you go into that kind of debt is that every dollar that you earn is spoken for before it ever gets into your account or before it ever gets into your wallet. And you've presumed upon the future to the point where if something happened in your life, financially speaking, what are you going to do? And this is the reality for so many American households today. I'm going to put a really obscure verse of Scripture up on the screen from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 6. Now, remember, I've told you before that Deuteronomy is a record of everything Moses said to the Israelites before they entered into the promised land. So he gave them his warning and his advice and his direction related to how they needed to live. And in chapter 24 and verse 6, he said, Do not take a pair of millstones, not even the upper one, as security for a debt, because that would be taking a man's livelihood as security. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, listen, this is Moses telling the Israelites that debt could jeopardize their ability, literally, to survive. Because the idea is if somebody has to grind grain for a living and they give up their millstone as security for debt, as security to borrow money or some other kind of wealth, then they have lost their capacity and their ability to earn income. So really, he's got a warning to the nation of Israel as a whole. He's saying, don't create an economy where people could put their ability to support themselves in jeopardy through debt. For us here in the United States of America, it's too late for that. We've already done that. And the bottom line is debt can kill you. Financially speaking, it can kill you when it comes to your ability just to survive. This is the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Let's count it down. The Bible begins like this. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's how far back God's warning against the danger of debt goes in the instruction of the Scriptures. We need the margin of planning when it comes to managing whatever monies God has entrusted to us because it will keep us from a variety of different dangers, and one of the biggest ones is the danger of debt. Now, let me just tell you this. If you are in debt today, you have borrowed money, and that's probably virtually all of us to some degree. I owe money on my mortgage today. That's the only debt that I have. It's on my mortgage. If, you, if you're in debt and you, have, uh, you owe money to somebody, then you need to understand that the Bible gives you this instruction. You need to pay it back. Psalm 37, verse 21 says, The wicked borrow and do not repay. That's a startling verse of Scripture to me because of the, the, the word wicked. God says, the wicked borrow and do not repay. So here's the deal. If you're deep in debt this morning, wherever you are, if you're listening to me online or you're just sitting here in this room, if you're deep in debt, then here's what you absolutely need to do. Number one, you need to decide that you're not going to borrow another dime. You're not going to go any deeper in debt than you are right now today. Number two, you just need to pray and you need to ask God for help. And number three, as soon as this service is over, you need to go out to the commons area or when you get home, you need to get on your computer and you need to sign up for Financial Peace University, this class that's going to begin in September the 17th that will help you learn how to manage your money, how to get out of debt and manage your money in a way that reflects good stewardship, in a way that honors God. You need to do that today. Now, let me give you a second thing uh, or a second reason why the margin of planning is so important when it comes to our finances. Number one, because it helps us avoid the danger of debt. Number two, having a plan will help you save for tomorrow. And listen, that's something that all of us should be doing. Saving money is a good cornerstone, has always been a good cornerstone, an important cornerstone of good financial management or stewardship. 
I'm going to put a verse up on the screen that we already looked at once, but let's just look at it again. Proverbs 21, 20. Read it with me. Let me hear your voices. In the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Now, we want to reflect wisdom in our lives in the way that we steward what God has entrusted to us, and so saving has got to be a part of our lives. Now, I don't have a lot of time to talk about this, so we need to do it quickly. When it comes to the margin of planning and we think about saving, then we need two kinds of savings in our lives. We need short-term savings and we need long-term savings. Short-term savings is for emergencies. Every one of us needs an emergency fund. Every one of us. Every one of us needs an amount of money set aside somewhere that we don't touch until we have an emergency, until we have that car repair bill or that home repair bill or that medical expense that comes unexpectedly. Every one of us needs that kind of short-term savings. We need short-term savings to, for specific goals. You know, if you're planning on some kind of a big family vacation, you need short-term savings to cover that. The last thing you want to do is put all that on a credit card because you'll be paying for it for years. If your wife wants a new convertible, well, you should do that if you want to be a world-class husband, but you need to set aside money for short-term savings so that you can handle that and you can make that purchase for her. There's all kinds of things that we need short-term savings for. But then in addition to that, we need long-term savings. We need long-term savings for that day that comes when we don't want to get up and go to work every day and earn a living, or we can't get up and go to work every day and earn a living. And we want to be able to take care of ourselves and not be dependent on someone else. We need to be involved in saving. And the best way to do that is to have the margin of planning as a part of your financial stewardship and your financial management. And let me tell you the most important thing that I can tell you about savings this morning. The most important thing I can tell you, and I want you to write this down. It's going to sound weird at first, but you just bear with me. I can tell you, the most important thing I can tell you is this. Savings requires discipline, not money. Savings requires discipline, not money. And what I mean by that is saving money is a lot more about discipline than it is about how much money you have or how much money you make. And listen, again, in conversations I've had with people over the years, I can tell you that the number one excuse in people's lives for a lack of savings is what they perceive as a lack of money. I can't save because I don't have any money to save. But if you exercise discipline in the way you handle whatever amount of money you have, you can save. One of my absolute favorite verses in all the Bible, no matter what category you're talking about of, of, of different things is Proverbs 13, 11, where the proverb writer says, dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little, everyone say little by little, little by little makes it grow. Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Now, everybody look up at me. I'm, I'm going to tell you, the, 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 way that the, the only way that the majority of us, the vast majority of us will ever be able to save any significant amount of money is by doing it little by little. Unless you win the lottery. Any lottery winners in here? I'd really like to know that because all that money belongs to God. <laughs> Unless you win the lottery or you get some significant inheritance from a relative uh, or something like that or you get some huge bonus, the only way that average, normal, ordinary people like you and me are ever going to be able to save a significant amount of money is by doing it little by little. The proverb writer says, dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Now, the idea of dishonest money is not exactly what you think. It's, it, 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 it really has the meaning more of, of the idea of trying to get rich quick. 
which is the way a lot of people view savings. You know, I'll save money when I win the lottery. I'll save money when I get that inheritance. I'll save money when I get that big sale and that big commission. We think of it in terms of something that will happen quickly, but that's why the proverb writer goes on to say, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. And you can do this. You can do this. Now, I can remember a time in my life when we lived in Texas and we, were, we struggled. We bought a house, uh, St. Ives' first house, and, uh, and then the oil industry uh, tanked in, in the Houston area and half of, of uh, our neighborhood was empty overnight. And so the housing values dropped dramatically. I mean, $10,000, $20,000 less than what you paid for the house. And we had uh, two children now. It was a tiny house we needed to get out. And uh, we, the only way we could sell it is to take money to the closing. We lost everything that we put into that house and took money to the closing just to get out of it. We had nothing. And we lived with her mom and dad for about six months. And I remember looking at the financial situation. I can remember the only thing that we had to save was $30 a week. That's it, $30 a week. That's all I could, that's all I could set aside for savings. And a lot of people would look at that $30 a week and think, you know what, that's not even worth it. That's not even enough to feed my family, taking them out to dinner one night. But this is back in the old days before you could transfer money automatically. And every week I wrote out a check for $30 and I took and I deposited it in the savings account. And my whole goal was to buy another house, a better house for my family to live in. And we did that for years. And then we moved to Oklahoma and all that money had added up to almost the exact amount that we needed for a down payment and the closing cost to move into a new house. Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money little by little makes it grow. Saving money is more about discipline than it is about money. And you can do this. You know, I have drilled these truths into the heads of my children from the time they were very small. And, and uh, some time ago, my daughter, Tricia, and she gave me permission to tell this story, came to me and told me uh, that she had discovered a really simple way to save money and to save it little by little in a way that it turns out to be, uh, or it can turn out to be a significant amount. She found this banking app for her phone called Capital. Maybe you've heard of it. We'll put the name of it up there. It's kind of an odd spelling. But you can link your debit card to an FDIC-insured bank account, and you have a number of different ways that you can save money. You can save money, and this is the way she does it. You can save money by putting uh, into place a rule on your account that every time you make a purchase with your debit card, they'll take, uh, you can set a number, and they'll round up your change to a certain number and automatically transfer that money from your debit card your checking account into your capital account. That's what she does. You can set it up where you can transfer a certain amount every week. You can set it up where you can reward yourself when you do something. Let's say that you need to go to the gym, but you're lazy. But when you do go to the gym, you automatically transfer $20 into your capital account. Well, she did that, and she told me that, uh, and she went on a couple of trips with friends earlier this year, one to Washington, one to New York, and she had been able to save in just through her capital account, uh, uh, rounding up the amount uh, the change from her uh, purchases had been able to save a little over $1,000 just for spending money for those two trips. She told me she started last spring uh, a capital account for Christmas and already has saved several hundred dollars for Christmas. And it's, you don't even think about it. You just make a purchase and it's automatic. This is the world that we live in today. Dishonest money dwindles away, but he who gathers money, say it with me, little by little makes it grow. And savings has always been a cornerstone of good stewardship. You need the margin of planning in your financial stewardship and management to help you avoid the danger of debt and to help you save for tomorrow. Write down the third one. The third margin is the margin of contentment. This is another critical part of being a good steward, the margin of contentment. 
um, not long ago when we were in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew. We were in chapter 6, which is just right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And we got to that great passage of Scripture uh, where Jesus talks about worry. It begins in Matthew 6, 25, and it goes down to verse 34. Matthew 6, 25 says, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? And so, in essence, Jesus is saying, don't focus on the things of the world. Don't be obsessed or consume with the things of the world. And he describes them like this, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and what you're going to wear. That's a good description of just the things of the world. Don't obsess on those things to the point of worry. Be content with what you have. He goes on to say in verse 32, he says, for the pagans, and that's just a word that means unbelievers, for the pagans run after all these things, the things of the world, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear. The pagans run after all these things, but then he says this, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. What physical need do you have that God doesn't know about? The need for shelter, for food, for clothes, for the other just details of life. God knows about all those things. And Jesus is saying, don't don't obsess on those things. Don't Don't be consumed with those things to the point where they create worry and anxiety in your life. God knows what you need, so be content. And he ends the whole passage in verse 33 by saying, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be given to you as well. Now, we need to live lives that are different from people who are not believers. As people of faith, we need to live lives that are distinctly different from people who have no faith. And so that means we need to make the kingdom of God and the things of God our first priority, trusting God to meet all of our needs. There's great value in contentment, friends. And we can be great stewards of what God has entrusted to us if we learn the margin of contentment. You know, the latest global statistic shows that if you have a roof over your head and you have food on your table, you're wealthier than 93% of the world's population. If you wear a pair of shoes every day, you're wealthier than 75% of the world's population. We already saw that the average credit card debt in America is over $16,000, and yet most people are discontented with their lifestyle. Why? Well, Solomon, who is perhaps the wisest and the richest man who ever lived, answered the question like this. In Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10, he writes and says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. Here's the bottom line. We need the margin of contentment. Now, I can't, t- I can't tell you what enough looks like for you and your life, and I wouldn't even try because that's not my business. I wouldn't even try. But I can tell you this. Every one of us needs to know the meaning of the word enough. Every one of us needs to have the word enough as a part of our financial vocabulary so that we can be good stewards of what God has entrusted to us. Jesus writes a little bit later in Matthew chapter 6, these famous words beginning in verse 19. He said, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's he saying? He's saying, in essence, we've got two choices when it comes to whatever God has entrusted us. We can invest it in things that are temporary, that are not going to last, that are going to pass away, or we can invest it in things that are eternal. What are you going to choose? This is the margin of contentment. Ecclesiastes 5.10, again, Solomon said, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. Real quickly, one last thing, the margin of generosity. Write that down. 
Write it down, but we're not going to really spend any time talking about it because we're going to talk about it in detail next week, which means you have to come back next week. God expects the margin of generosity to be a part of our stewardship. And the Bible tells us over and over again that when we are generous, that God will be generous to us. That when we are generous, that we receive the blessing of God. And it can come into our lives in a variety of different ways. Let me just show you one verse of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul writes and says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And Paul writes those words, just in case there's any confusion, he writes those words in the context of giving because the very next verse says, each man should give what he's decided to give in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so he's saying, if you sow generously, you're going to reap generously, but if you sow sparingly, you're going to reap sparingly. Now, I've told you, I told you we're going to talk more about this next week, but here's the bottom line. In God's economy, giving is a crucial part of being a good steward. Generosity is a crucial part of being a good steward. God, who is so generous with us, expects us to follow his example and be generous with others. You notice I got the tip jars down today. I haven't had them out in a long time. And it's a good thing they're not tips on the quality of the message because that would be a little bit discouraging. No, that's, we've taken up the money, most of it, from the last service. And that, let me just tell you why they're here, okay? Just a generosity challenge. In just a few minutes, we're going to have our offering time like we always do. And uh, uh, we're going to take up our regular offering to support the ministry of the church, and and, um, I'm thankful for your generosity, and I'm just going to continue to challenge you that way. We're going to do change for a dollar like we always do this week. You're going to hear the the most recent change for a dollar story, and we're going to challenge everybody to give one dollar more per person in their family than what they came prepared to give. So for a family of four, we're going to challenge you to give four dollars more to the offering today. And then after this weekend is over, we're going to take... Uh, our weekend attendance times a dollar. When we have a holiday weekend and we know that our attendance is down, we, we account for that and we, we go on an average weekend attendance so that nobody gets shortchanged. And we're going to immediately help somebody with a need. And as I said, you're going to hear that uh, story in just a few minutes. I used to put these tip jars out sometimes when we would, they were kind of like a precursor to change for a dollar when we would have a special need and I would invite you when the service is over if you felt led just to come down and drop some money in the jar, whether it was a dollar or whatever it might be that you want to give. But we've got these out because at the end of the service, I'm going to challenge you just to another step of generosity today because we're going to take our offering. We're going to do change for a dollar. But this is for hurricane relief for people in Houston. If you've been watching the news like I have and seen the devastation that's there, and it's not just the Houston area, it's the surrounding area as well. Sandy and I both have family that continue to live in Houston. You know, my first church was in Houston. I've got, we've got more friends than I can name. I got a text from my, one of my best friends in the world who was the best man at my wedding uh, this last Tuesday, and he told me that he and his wife had just been evacuated from their home by a boat. Can you imagine? And listen, their children are grown and gone, but they have their 92-year-old, her, his, his wife's 92-year-old grandmother lives with them. And I tried to picture in my mind getting that 92-year-old woman out of that home that was flooded in a boat to take them to safety. And this is the routine of what's happened to a lot of people there. And so, you know, when, when, her, when, when natural disasters happen or tragedies happen around the world, it's, it, we need to respond. We need to respond in generosity. You're going to learn a little bit more about that uh, before the service is over. But here's the deal. I want you to listen to me really close. That means, that means don't leave early today, which so many of you do every week, which is so, it, it, that's very upsetting to me. 
I used to, I used to, when I closed the service, I used to stand with my back to the audience so I couldn't see how many people were leaving. And now I leave afterwards and I come back down to go to the connection, guest connection room, and I see so many people leaving before the service is over. And I just want to like, it's, I'm the fruit of the spirit of self-control has taken over me. <laughs> just so you'll know, don't leave early. And if you feel led, come down and demonstrate the margin of generosity for people who are in need. God wants us to be good stewards of what he's entrusted to us, everything. But we can't do it just, we can't do it without some kind of, of, of thought. That's why we need the margin of knowledge to know where we stand. That's why we need the margin of planning to know what we're going to do. That's why we need the margin of contentment so we can say enough. And that's why we need the margin of generosity. Now, you might be here this morning, and you're really struggling in the area of finances. Listen, if that's the case, if you're in deep debt today, for example, then what you need to do is you need to decide today that you're not going to go into debt any longer, no more debt, that number two, you're going to pray and ask God for help, and number three, you're going to sign up for Financial Peace University when it's offered here on September the 17th. That's when the class begins. You can do that. You can, you can do that today. But the bottom line is this, and I believe this about any area of life. I believe this is true, whether you're talking about finances, a, a marriage in trouble, a family that's separated, a career that's floundering, whatever it is. Here's what I believe. I believe that if you recognize your need and you take a step toward God, God's going to take a step towards you. I believe that with all my heart. James chapter 4 says, when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. Financially speaking, if you take a step toward God today, by, by, by trying to incorporate the right margin in your stewardship plan, I guarantee you God will take a step towards you. You just need to remember that. All right, I'm out of time. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for loving us and help us to have the courage to be honest.